Thank you so much, Susie, for uh, sitting down and talking about uh, your experience as Poet in Residence. You've been Poet in Residence for the whole of the series. So I have. The textual strand, the monumental strand, and the owl oral strand. Um, could you say a little bit about what your experience has been as Poet in Residence throughout those strands, um, particularly perhaps what, how you felt at the beginning, if you can cast your mind back to that point, uh, back in November? Um, and then think about maybe how your perceptions of the role have changed because it's certainly to an extent you have curated the role I mean you've created the role of poet residence rather than us sort of saying here's what you should be doing really interesting question Neil thank you and yes I, I absolutely can remember the very beginning because I joined the series um, the, almost the first moment I joined it was a remembrance day and so I joined in the workshop where we actually held our own two minute silence um, and I remember that very clearly because while I was sitting in that silence it just provoked so many questions for me partly about the series partly about commemoration and partly about what I was doing there as the poet and what a, an overwhelming responsibility it suddenly felt to respond in poetry to some of what I was hearing um, and I wrote a blog post at that point where I try to conceptualise the role of the poet in residence as providing an alternative way of engaging with the three main questions of the series. So those questions about you know, really should we be commemorating and what's the future of commemoration? Mm. Who's uh, it for? Who's it for? Yeah. And it, at that point, it seemed to me that my role as a poet was to find an alternative way of engaging with those questions that wasn't just the workshops and the keynote speeches or even the textual aural um, commemoration forms, but another form again. And I start, I think, probably the first two months, I immersed myself in all of the reading lists that have been provided, catching up on all the podcasts, really thinking about those questions, um, and almost painted myself into a bit of a corner, because I realised I'd actually set myself a very abstract task, because... Um, whilst I think it's still true and I still think the role of the poet in residence is to provide poetry as a way of engaging with those questions, poetry doesn't really come out of that kind of abstract place. I think it can come out of a very intellectual place, but also a very emotional place. You mean the production of poetry? Yes. Mm. And I think I painted myself into a place where I really only had abstract ideas. So I could have written you a great essay mm. at that point, but I wasn't feeling like I had any... I hadn't found myself a place where I could start to create something. So I then realised I needed to find my, my own template and that that template would what would then organise my poetic response and hopefully through that I would then be able to return some, to some of those questions. And fortunately I did find that and we'll probably be talking about that later on but obviously what I, I realised was the Bayer tapestry and that tapestry form with a way that it is many things stitched together um, with some silence and some voices and some mixture of language and its method of production and its history as a political object gave me that template and once I had that then I was able to start work and by then I think I was beginning to develop my own ideas my own answers to those questions so it started to fuel the creative process so I think by the end of the series I still felt that it was the job of the Persian residents not just to create their own independent piece but a piece that responded in its own way to those questions but actually I'd gone through quite a journey of my own quite a personal journey to get there because mm. so the pieces that you produce which you've kind of together in a, in a sort of short collection called Tenter 
Um, it is an extraordinary uh, selection of work um, and is in itself a kind of tapestry, I suppose, of voices and influences and the fact that you, you range from the kind of early stages seem to be responding to the kind of textual strand, then we have the monumental strand sort of in the middle of the collection and then the oral strand or oral strand towards the end. Um, did you, when did you conceive of it like that? I think as as we progressed through the, each of the terms, and I was engaging both by listening to people talking but also reading their work, getting into discussions with them, it almost organically started to influence some of the images, some of the language I was drawing on, and giving me that different perspective on some of those questions. So it was partly conscious, but it was partly almost an organic, organic progression as I was being exposed to those different ideas, which, of course, that is, for me, the whole joy of a residency is you're being constantly immersed and exposed to the ongoing sort of learning curve of the whole series and I'm really glad you've picked up on the variety of voices and forms in in the piece I do see it as one piece even though it is composed of separate parts as the tapestry is of course it's it's a number of different pieces joined together because very early on in the series a number of the speakers made the point about voices who had been silenced or marginalised in some of our most um, well-known forms of, of commemoration and the emergence of a single narrative, particularly around the two world wars and many experiences not being cited on, but also some of the contemporary wars in which we as a country are involved, possibly indirectly, um, but we are not, um, they don't have any place in our commemorative narrative as a country and so it was very important to me to develop poetic forms that surfaced some of those voices and provide an opportunity for the marginalized to become central but can you just explain what tenter means so tenter means both the person and the machinery if you like through which the process of um, stretching cloth takes place so in order to do any work on a piece of cloth be it dyeing it or stitching on it um, or shaping it it needs to be stretched um, out on a frame so the frame that it's stretched on is called the tenter or the tenter frame and the person that does the stretching is also called the tenter and of course that's where we get the phrase tenter hooks because those are the hooks that grip the material or the fabric onto the frame it also has a, a one of its roots is the word that has led to our word attention so it also means a person who pays attention to so for me it was a very appropriate word for this for this um, piece of work I also like liked the resonance with the sound of entering and tenderness and I like the fact it had some sort of sound um, resonances in that way so and, and tentativeness maybe just because there are moments sitting the, the organ here a bit in a moment but from the early sections in the, in the collection which are quite sort of there's a question about tentativeness like yes, how sure yes. can I be about memory maybe or how sure can I be that I'm saying the right kinds of things yes. around memory, that, that's absolutely right part of each of the part of the form of each of the pieces is to have that element of openness or uncertainty and I think it reflects absolutely as you said the uncertainty of memory mm. also uncertainty about the position of the poet who is writing about things they may not have directly 
experience so therefore what right have I kind of question and then also the uncertainty about how to deal with personal grief that comes up at perhaps the most inappropriate time when you're trying to commemorate different tragedies and you find personal emotion inevitably flowing into that as well it's something that jory graham the poet talks about about how you balance those things how you find a place for those things um and it does create an uncertainty as to how do you find that solid ground and what i found was that the solid ground was not there and you'll see in the form of the poems many of them are quite fragmented and spaces open up between the words almost as though the ground is beginning to give way beneath your feet okay so we won't keep people on tenterhooks any longer. Uh, could you possibly read uh, the first three sections of Memoration, which is the opening section of the collection? I would love to. Thank you. Memoration. Mamor. Old English. Deep thought. Deep inwards. As a tree gives way or the side of a hill from beneath. To leave this behind, each of us going back far enough. Mimeren, Dutch, to ponder, muse, as you follow the path down, cognate with Old English, Memorian, or Middle English, Mimeren, be undecided, waver. A thread bright as gorse jerks you on, you do not mean to remember for sale signs on your family home to walk out of each moment as it flares bright as a stuck frame some stain or residue some taint of red crossing into blue follows each turn of your head as you mamron proto-germanic to take care worry this partial memory, shrinking back beneath its moss, crumbling. From Proto-Indo-European, mare, smear. To think about, be mindful, producing something. You start to clear the house. It's impossible to throw anything away. You build a tower out of boxes, hang it with lights. Wonderful, thank you very much. Um... So maybe it's useful here to kind of paint in a bit of context, kind of personal context, uh, particularly that, that third poem uh, relates to an extent to your mother as well. Yes, so uh, just before I started the residency, my mother died. So um, that was one of the features of my opening memory of the series, as I've mentioned, coming and spending that two minutes in silence fully intending to be participating in a communal act of commemoration, only to find that one of the things that came up in those two minutes was my own grief, which just seemed to be ready to flow into any space that I gave it, particularly at that point, and of course still. So throughout this whole piece uh, of work, my struggle to find a place for that personal grief and my concern that maybe it wasn't appropriate to give that centre stage when uh, we were thinking about the loss of millions in very tragic circumstances, and yet it would be dishonest to deny it. Um, and one of the speakers on one of the uh, panels talked about 
um, what he saw as a profound difference between personal grief and commemoration and the danger, as he saw it, of thinking that public commemoration followed something of the same path. Well, I took that as a bit of a question, to be honest. I thought, I don't know really what that relationship is. Are, are there a continuum with personal grief shading through to public grief or are they two quite separate processes? So again, that's something I return to throughout the different pieces um, and come to not, not exactly a resolution, but I come to a final place for now um, in the penultimate poem of this collection um, where some of the phrases that I've just read reappear but in a different context. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really interesting question, actually, and, and, and that question about appropriateness. What is it? What is it appropriate to commemorate? Also, what is the appropriate way to commemorate things as well? Um, do you think that this is maybe relating to what you're saying? Do you think that commemoration is is always a personal thing, as well as being a national or in some ways, kind of international thing as well? Well, I think one of the things that I'm trying to say in this piece is that I think it is so very many things. Mm. And what was so interesting to me in this very first poem, which I think it's got something like nine, nine or ten parts, is that if you start to even unpack the roots of the word, it's not really one thing. It's many different things that we've kind of pulled together into one thing. And certainly within the, on the public stage, that one thing has become rather ritualised and even, dare I say, commodified mm. um, and almost we forget some of those other other things that flow into it. So I, w- I would say there is a range and that within many forms of commemoration, a personal um, connection to it through a family member, through personal experience, or even through a profoundly imaginative engagement will be a feature. But then I have participated, um, not through the series, but at the same time as the series, in some very public forms of commemoration that seem to be almost entirely driven by the needs of an organisation to validate itself. Um, and that there seem to be very little in the way of personal participation in that. So for me, the jury's out about quite what that relationship is. I think more importantly for me, it's about keeping that question alive and dynamic um, and not letting it become this closed thing, which again goes back to the form of many of these poems. I'm really trying to push against a final position or something which is closed and can be packaged as the commemoration. Yes, because what's so interesting about this, the first memoration sequence is that it looks like they're definitions. Uh, because you have, you know, the word which in the first instance mammals up from Old English, and you have a kind of de- definition there, and yet the definition kind of slips in a way. It kind of shifts towards maybe a more personal way of understanding that definition, or something that isn't quite so staid, isn't quite so much the sort of thing you find in a dictionary. I think each one of them are both definitions and little poems in themselves. And um, in in the notes that I'm pulling together for this, I do give credit to lots of other poets who have been a huge influence on me and one of those poets is Anne Carson so I'm sure there will be listeners who have heard you say that and will think that rings a bell where have I seen that before and is a very that poem is partly a tribute to one of the great um, personal commemoration poems which is Knox by Anne Carson and one of the features of Knox is uh, throughout the book Anne Carson appears to be giving a series of um, etymological explanations of various words but they then turn into their own little laments and that gave me permission to do something similar because the wonderful thing about Anne Carson is she is a great 
classical scholar, which I am certainly not, but she takes huge liberties. And you start to read her um, word derivations and definitions, and about halfway through you realise she's actually now creating her own definitions and going into her own poems. So from that, I took um, a creative permission to do something rather similar. Because that's a really interesting idea, because one of the things that we have picked up a few times, particularly in the kind of um, monumental section, is this idea of the kind of counter-monument or the counter-narrative. Um, and I wonder whether that's partly what you're doing here and what maybe, you know, what she's also doing. Is she, you and she are picking up these definitions and then you are kind of rewriting them effectively or you're getting inside the language uh, to the point where you are, um, if you like, sort of hollowing it out and finding for you what is actually the essence of what that means. I think that's a really um, interesting uh, response to that. And I think there's two ways in which I want to... Um, take that a little bit further Um, and I think that it's the first thing is some notion of illegitimacy because I think for some people when they read Knox and certainly people who perhaps listen to um, what I've just read will feel a sense of illegitimacy because they may feel that the definitions I'm appearing to offer aren't accurate um, and they're not the ones that they would necessarily find in a dictionary um, and that is one of the things that I'm doing in this this poem is contesting that idea or at least exploring what makes something uh, legitimate and is it a notion of truth is it a notion of ownership or is it a notion of state sanction um, and this is rather a more playful way of doing that so that that's in that, that happens throughout the um, s- series of poems particularly around the the um, Bayer tapestry because the version of the narrative that's presented in the tapestry is only one of many versions of what actually happened at the Battle of Hastings but the story that we've then got the truth the legitimate account um, has been given that by the context within, within which it was produced. The second point I want to pick up on is that notion of hollowing out words but I don't know that I would necessarily say that by hollowing out those words we then reach some point of truth or um, firm place I think it's more about exposing that hollowness that decenteredness um, and what I would see is a gap and that gap is a very important point in all of these poems because I think that notion of a gap between the word and all the various different things it might relate to in terms of its meanings, in terms of its representation, um, is a really important space. Um, and you could argue it's a space for commemoration because there is an absence sitting underneath these words, which in a way could be a lament for any kind of relationship with the physical world or the emotional world. Um, and it's a creative gap because um, that would allow someone like Gertrude Stein, for example, to detach those words from their normal meanings and use them in extraordinary ways. Um, But it's also a gap that can be quite dangerous if it isn't acknowledged or if it's naturalised and if we seem to believe that words have some kind of absolute correspondence with the things that they are supposed to mean. And the reason why that's important is not just because poetry is a language-based art but I think those same things are true of both memory personal memory and commemoration so I do think that same gap between what we think is our own personal memory and the thing that it is a trace of 
has all sorts of gaps and all sorts of recreations. Um, and I know the jury is out how much of an original trace there is and how much it's a recreation, but there's certainly some kind of gap. And the gap between an official commemoration or a group commemoration and the various experiences it's based on is also a really important space. And I think those are great spaces. That's where we can be highly creative and highly reinvigorating of commemoration. But if you plaster that over and you try to um, get rid of that gap then I think instead of becoming creative and replenishing, that's when it becomes rigid and reified and commodified and becomes the kind of commemorative practice that I think is in, in some kind of crisis. Mm. So just to be clear on what you mean by the, the gap. So the gap is between um, a kind of general understanding of the word and other people's perceptions of that word, or the way that other people interpret or reinterpret that word or that understanding? I think it's a series of gaps because I would say the the most fundamental gap is between the signifier and the signified and the the, the lack of any kind of natural correspondence the you know, to, to quote Stein again, the tender button, if you like, which is the signifier and the way that it can be, become detached from any kind of signified. So that's like the initial gap. And then the kind of gap that you start to talk about, that you were talking about, as to when we start to pin it to definitions and start to insist that one word means a certain thing. Um, so if we go back to tenter in our original conversation, um, the idea that it just has one meaning, whereas in fact, as I've started to explain, um, it can be pulled apart to having all sorts of meanings and it's then more a question of authority as to who insists on what that one meaning is and I think those things are true for memory and commemoration. Mm. So the reason why many of the poems in this collection use the physical appearance of a gap um, as white space on the page is partly to try and surface some of and denaturalise some of those really important gaps. And that that could also be a dangerous gap, I suppose, in, in a way, couldn't it? Because if you are, if that gap doesn't exist, uh, there's one way of reading a situation. There's one way of commemorating, which could exactly. also, I suppose, create a gap, if you like, between the reality of the situation however many years ago and the way we look at it now, and therefore create an alternative narrative, which could yes. be hugely damaging, actually. Uh, and you know, in, in a time when we are constantly concerned with. Um, fake news uh, would we be offered a commemoration that uh, we've been doing for so long but we've started to believe it and that could have all kinds of effects for uh, the way we think about refugees or the way we think about uh, or the way we've forgotten about how to think about refugees yes. uh, in our present time compared to say after World War Two. Absolutely I think that's that's you you've really nailed exactly what a lot of the poems are trying to do mm. and I would say that um, if I go right back to your very first question which was about my journey through the residency I think one of the things that happened not initially but as I listened and engaged um, with some very powerful speakers and and people who've experienced things that I have not experienced and um, and tragedies and, and and terrible things that they've seen and experienced one of the things that really began to emerge for me in thinking about commemoration in this country in the UK which is what I have personal experience of is what seems to me a crisis so and I don't use that word lightly but for me it's a crisis when in a period of four years 14 to 18 where we have publicly committed ourselves to commemorating the First World War, that is the same period where some of the most 
distressing refugee crises have happened on our very doorstep and interesting for me around the very same territory that features in the Bayer Tapestry that's the southern part of England the northern part of France that has been the site of some real um, difficulty for us in engaging with that refugee problem on our doorstep Um, and that the fact that's happened at the same time and we've had political leaders um, who have taken part in public commemorations where they've said things like never again, and yet they've not been able to make any connection between that and what to me has been the most inhumane treatment of the consequences of some of those wars, that the enforced migration that has come out of the series of conflicts um, that we've been unable to then grapple with, that strikes me as a crisis. And so that has been one of the, the biggest commitments of this work is to try and understand that crisis. How is it that we can commemorate and at the same time behave in ways that are not ethically informed by that commemoration? Now, that is the stuff of poetry to me. That is the job of poetry to try and understand that. And for me, that meant then looking at commemoration, um, the memory, the processes of memory and the processes of language that sit underneath that. And for me, it's that not not understanding that gap and that naturalizing of the gap, which, if I may you know, say, say it more plainly, leads to the privileging of one narrative, false or otherwise. I mean, it, it becomes false. The minute you say there's only one narrative, that makes it false because you're then excluding other stories, other voices, other experiences. And that same exclusion of, of other stories from the one story to me is what has led to that crisis that we cannot understand that these other stories the refugee story should be part of our commemorative story right which are shared there's a shared narrative yeah. actually there yeah so with that in mind could you possibly read for us um just the last part of memoration um which seems to kind of dovetail with some of the things you've been talking about so the um, poem memoration takes takes you through a series of definitions, and I started with the first three, um, but it finishes with a series of um, definitions of the way that the word commemorate is used in English, um, and then off, so I'll just finish with the final one. Commemorate, English, to be mindful together. This part of southern England could be northern France. A white window frame looks like an edge of grief you tiptoe back from. Something prickles, grazes your skin. A news story. Refugees in the back of a refrigerated lorry. It is the slash of a knife to claim a few feet of space in the suffocating ice. Two children, no more than eight or nine, Throw stones to preserve a makeshift shelter of plaited branches. Each red and blue freckle, minute particles of an earlier design. So in that poem, I think it's very interesting. There's a kind of coming to consciousness. It appears in the first, you know, three or four lines where something prickles, grazes your skin. There's a sense in which it's something that a lot of people just ignore. But actually, there's a kind of pricking of the conscience, I suppose, there. Yeah. Um, and it, it, do you think that is something then that poetry is able to do? What, what is it that poetry can do? Can, can poetry act as a sort of witness? Um, can it 
It allows us to interrogate language in such a way that it allows us to look at our world somewhat differently, particularly in a, a kind of a political, politically charged world or a world which is, as you're suggesting, in a kind of form of crisis. Yeah. I think it can prickle. So, um, and I, I would say that there are a number of people who, who find um, the poetry that I write and the kind of poetry I write very prickling. Um, it's not particularly comfortable. Um, it's it's not necessarily a series of, of lyrical moments. There is a lyrical moment in this, in this, but it's not it's not all that. Um, and therefore, it is quite uncomfortable. Read sometimes it demands quite a lot of work from the reader to complete some of it, and that prickles and provokes and unfortunately what that means for some people is they then just <laughs> close the book and they don't want to read it anymore but hopefully it will also it's the kind of prickle that makes you want to scratch that itch and think okay so what is this about why has why why has this poet put a full stop you know after every few words what is that what is that about or why is the gap here and so it's to prickle to raise to consciousness um, and I do think because language is such an important part of memory and therefore of commemoration and poetry is a language art one of the things it can do is to really try and explore expose what some of the um, issues are with using language and using memory um, and some of the risks and some of the opportunities i do also think that this is not just um, a record of a process uh, that the hope is that as readers engage with this work that they will go through some of the process of being bothered by things not being able to resolve things and then bring their own um, conclusions or, or thoughts to bear and I would hope it's a bit of a call to action because these are you know these are not um, easy things to be thinking about that, that while we're having this conversation that we know that there are children refugees um, you know, young people who are um, stranded and who, who who have got no idea what their future is so it's a very live crisis right here right now and we have a recording of you uh, reading a number of these with the other poets in residence which uh, will also be available on our podcast series um, but for now, that's been such a really useful kind of rich discussion. Susie, thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you.